Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We are in the book of Joel today. That's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We don't go to the book of Joel a whole lot. We'll talk about maybe a little of why that is. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are possessed of certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think we've taken that way too seriously. And here's what I mean by that. We have pursued, as a people, happiness to a level that is unhealthy at the expense of other people's dignity, at the expense of future generations. Uh, We have squandered resources and finances. They say that every American now is born with something like a quarter of a million debt. That's our share of the the national debt. Um, We have pursued happiness at the exclusion of other people's well-being, We have made the pursuit of happiness a right. And I'm telling you that as Christians, I don't think you have that right. Um, The Christian is called to serve other people, to look out for other people. And sometimes that will inconvenience you. Sometimes that will cost you. Doing the right thing should put you out sometimes. It shouldn't be about you all the time and your happiness. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that there's a time for everything. You know the song, turn, turn, turn. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, he says. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And I think that we assume that if you are sad and mourning and upset that you must be doing something wrong because it's your right to be happy all the time. But that's not biblical. I think we've forgotten the value, the purpose of weeping and mourning. In Joel, the nation of Israel is called, we're talking about unity, the nation of Israel is called to unite in mourning. There may be a lesson here for us. So with that said, let's start the book of Joel. (coughs) The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of uh, Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It is the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. 
It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. Well, okay, you can kind of maybe see why we don't hit this one as often as others. Israel is facing a tough time. And we're not entirely... So, we don't know when this book was written, partly because we don't entirely know the con- context. And here's the confusion of this passage. We don't know what event Joel is referring to, which means, because the Bible sometimes uses this beautiful symbolic language, we're not 100% sure if Joel is describing a swarm of locusts that is as massive as an army, or if he's describing an army that is as massive as a swarm of locusts. We actually don't entirely know that. But the fact that Joel doesn't specify and God doesn't leave that to us tells me that's not really the point of the book. Israel's in a tough time. One scholar said, this is crunch time for Israel. Crunch being the sound that you make when you're walking on a ton of dead locusts. That may be true. Uh, Israel was in the time of the crunch. The going was more than tough generationally difficult. Joel says, you've never seen anything like this. This was devastation. Either the worst plague of locusts that just destroyed the crops, or armies that would destroy the crops because they would camp out on the fields and take all the crops from people. Either way, there's no food. The The nation is facing poverty, hunger. We hit. We hit these points in our own lives sometimes, don't we? When... There, there are times when the going gets tough, and then there are times that we think we've never been through the, anything this difficult before. And sometimes we hit that point of despair. The word tough isn't enough. Sometimes it feels no win. Sometimes it feels there is no solution that will get us through it. And Israel was in that place at this time. If the locusts in the army or the, or the army is already there, It feels like there's no solution for Israel. And the words of Joel tell us what the correct response is. Get over it. No, that's actually not at all what he says. What he says is wail and mourn. Despair. The people were confused and angry and suffering. And Joel says, those emotions are legitimate. That that is what you should be feeling right now. But the despair, but, but here's where it tw- it, the despair has a purpose. Sometimes we need to despair. Sometimes we need to hit rock bottom. Why does God allow these things to happen to me, we might say? It's a good, good question. Everybody should ask that question, I think. And I would argue that I think that there are things in life worse than rock bottom. When sin separates us from God 
Rock bottom's not the worst thing that can happen to us, is it? Living out of step with God is worse. Separated from him for eternity is much worse. And that's the power of sin. And we know the story of the Bible. We know the story of the Old Testament. Israel would sin, either natural disaster or or, or foreign invasion. God used both to punish Israel. Would, Would happen. It could be either one here would happen, and God would use it as the wake-up call to tell Israel, you're not following me, and you should be following me. And these disasters would be used by God to remind Israel that there was a fate worse than these disasters, and that is to be separated from him. We live today in what I think is, is a rather terrifying day and age. There are a lot of, and I'm talking about the church, there, there is, the, the church has become so worldly. So many churches have become so very worldly. Uh, there, there is a rather famous televangelist that I don't feel the need to name, but I'm sure you've seen him on TV, that has said that we don't need to talk about sin anymore. That's not God's message for the world. I think we live in the most sinful time I, that... that that, that we've lived in for generations. I think just the opposite is true. But if you have a church that doesn't preach sin, then anything goes. If, if anything goes, then we don't need Jesus to save us from sin because sin is okay. The danger of, one of the dangers of the, of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, is that there's rarely any call to repentance. It just kind of says if you're rich, you must be following God, and if you're poor, you're probably not following God, which is ridiculous. It's heresy. When God's people won't talk of sin, that it separates us from God, then how how can we turn from it? Does that not make a mockery of why Jesus died to free us from it? And how can we repent of our sin if we don't talk about it? I think of, and again, I'm going to try to dodge names today. I think of a particularly large church in Chicago, because I lived in Illinois for for ages, um, a church that I was quite familiar with, that did everything, that the the description of the church was that the church was three miles wide and an inch deep. They even had had a study done on people that, their back door was enormous. I mean, they hit a certain point, and then they just quit growing because the number of people that were coming in, church of thousands, people that were coming in equaled the people that were leaving. They did a study as to why this was, and the discovery was, it doesn't matter if you've gone here for two weeks or for five years. You know the same. Kindergarten-level Christianity, and there's no call to get any deeper than ask Jesus into your heart. And that's not the point of the New Testament. It's not the point of the Bible. Lots of people in that church, but no one was growing closer to Christ. And that's a problem. Um, Our goal is not attendance numbers. Now, let me be clear. When those numbers, I I, I get to look at our little numbers and see what our numbers are, because next to the clock, I also know why you guys want me to be able to see that, too. I get that. But um, I like seeing the numbers climb, because it means that more people are hearing the gospel. But if people aren't drawing closer to God, that's only half the picture. Getting people in the door is half the picture. The other half is that we, we disciple. 
We, we, we want people to become more Christ-like. If you are not more Christ-like than you were a year ago, then either we're messing up or you're messing up. It's one or the other. Either the church is not doing its job or you're just tuning out the gospel and the Holy Spirit and the messages and, and, and you're just not putting... Because it takes both. I mean, the church needs to preach the gospel, but you've, you've got to be invested as well. The goal of the church is not just attendance numbers. And so we talk about repentance, which means, Greek word metanoia, you, meta means to change, noia your mind, but, what it, but, but it means it's more than a mental thing. It literally means to do an about face. Um, uh, repentance means to stop, to knock it off, <laughs> to whatever it was you were doing, to stop it and do the opposite. If I'm walking this way, repentance doesn't mean to stop and say, I think that's the wrong direction. Repentance means to change and go the other way. And the problem with repentance in churches often today, there's a couple of wrong ways to do repentance. One, one is to downplay the need for it. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad of a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. You know, you think of the um, example Jesus gives of the uh, the Pharisee that says, "God, I'm I'm a sinner, but I'm not you know I'm not like this guy over here. He's a terrible sinner." I, that's one thing that people Christians can be bad about. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. And when we do that, we we downplay. The gravity of sin. The other, the other thing is to overdo it. The other thing that you see sometimes is what I call a performance repentance. Um, Paul describes himself as a worm, and there are some people that think that they can one-up him, and, and, and if Paul can get attention for calling himself a worm, which was not Paul's goal, then they can one-up that, and they can really grovel in it for attention. Um, the... When I was in church camp as a kid, every year at the end of the week, the same kids came forward every single year to rededicate their life to Christ. It was just a performance. I'm not saying you shouldn't rededicate your life to Christ, but if you're doing it year after year after year and you can kind of say, oh, there, there, there she is, saw that coming. At that point, it's performance. That's not true repentance either. Repentance isn't for show. God knows our heart. It matters. And it matters, and that's why we talk about mourning our sin we there can't be repentance until we understand and lament the true gravity of sin and it should we it should cause us to mourn if we cannot see the sin in the world around us and mourn it and 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 be upset by what we see if we just blow it off and say it's the world we live in god sees this and it breaks his heart it should break our heart too. Keep reading. Verse, verse 13. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. 
Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain is dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. So Israel faces annihilation, complete destruction at the hands of her enemies. We understand why Israel despairs. She is outside of divine intervention. She is doomed. And so we ask the question, what, what brought about this? Well, it actually doesn't matter, again, whether or not they're bugs or men. The question we ask is, why are they here? Whatever this destruction is, what brought them to this point? We know the answer to that. It's sin. God told Israel, he made a covenant with them. If you follow me, you may live in this land that was called Canaan, now Israel. And anybody that knows much history, I mean, this was, this was the Fertile Crescent. This was choice land. Um, the, three, the three big ancient civilizations. And they were big civilizations because they had all the resources they needed. They had the water, they had the farmland, that Egypt, the Nile River is amazing. Um, Babylon, uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, and Greece. These were the three big civilizations. And the middle point between these three was Canaan. It was choice real estate. It was the best trading land. Everybody wanted the land. And God said, you guys can have this choice place, and I will even keep everybody else out. I will keep you from being conquered if you follow me. And if you don't follow me, I'll take my hands off, and whatever happens, happens. And that's what is. Israel has quit following God. Consequences to their actions now. Um, right? They broke the covenant. He doesn't need to protect them from their enemies. And so, with destruction facing them, Joel calls on the nation to repent. First, he calls on them to mourn. That's even before the repentance. And we don't like to mourn. The reason, the reason Joel calls on mourning is recognize how serious this is. Be upset. They, no, no, nothing's worse Confession, I struggle with this. I do something, I do something wrong. I, I'm inconsiderate. I, I, Pam says, don't use this pot. This is what happens to me a lot. Don't use this pot, and I use it anyway or something. And I kind of try to blow through it, and Pam wants me to know. No, <laughs> you're just blowing this off. I want you to understand what you did was wrong. Um, and, and, and why this matters to me. And I, that's, that's where Joel, that's what Joel is saying to the people. Start with mourning. Let's see if you understand, before we get to the repentance and changing your behavior, let's make sure you understand the gravity of what you did because you can't just blow this off and turn around and say, oh, no big deal, I messed up. Let's move on. We don't like to mourn because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. That might humiliate us. And that might hurt our pride. And we have too much pride. Pride is what keeps us from God. And if that's true, if pride keeps us from God, humiliation, painful as that word is, maybe how God gets our attention and pulls us back in. A hard lesson, hard lesson for American Christians. Private sin is hard to give up. You're doing something wrong, 
Nobody's caught you. You say you're going to give it up, but nobody's caught you, so you can keep doing it, get away with it. Even if you know it's wrong and that God wants you to give it up, nobody else knows. And, and that's, that's why accountability is so important. We don't like it because we very much live in a, you mind your business, I'll mind mine, stay out of my life. I've had people tell me that in, in churches. Um, you know, mind your own business, stay out of my life. I get to, we, get, we get people that get in financial trouble sometimes, and they'll call the church for help. And one of the things I like, we, we like to do, previous church, this church, let's sit down and talk about maybe how you got into this financial strait. Because if, if your expenses are 2000 bucks a month and you're only bringing in 1500 bucks a month, helping you out this month isn't going to help you for next month. Let's sit down, maybe discuss, no, 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 mind your own business. We get that a lot. We get that a lot. (laughs) Accountability is something we don't like in in America. It takes humility. The Christian community is based upon a mutual commitment that we are to share our lives with each other. Now, that doesn't mean at all hours of the day and night, text me and ask me what I'm doing. We're not not talking about invasive But we're bad about when I ask, how are you? know, I get it on the way out the door. There's people behind you. When I ask you how you are, I'm fine is such a blow-off answer, isn't it? But I do it all the time, too. Now, sometimes we don't have time to give a, a long answer. Um, but, but we use that phrase, I'm fine, to kind of dismiss sometimes people that care. Sometimes people are asking and they don't care. I get it. And you know they don't care, so you say you're fine, and you guys have both done your social obligation. But within the church, we should care. And when we ask how you're doing, we should care about the answer. When we cover up sin, we live as children of darkness. When sin is covered up and not held accountable. Well, let me, here's a story. I knew of a church that the preacher was cheating on his wife. And the elders found out, and they called him in, and they decided the best thing definitely was for him to go, and they fired him. In an effort to spare his dignity, they decided not to make the announcement of why he was leaving. So he left. And because half the church thought that he'd been fired unfairly, half the church left with him. Split the church. They had made their new church. They picked their new elders. A year later, those elders found out what was going on, and then they fired him. Now there are two churches in town that hated each other, and it could have been avoided if there had been some accountability. Sin is dangerous to cover up. It's not a private affair. Jesus died to defeat sin. You can't conquer it on your own. If you could conquer sin on your own, you wouldn't need Jesus. Just because people might think I'm out of line. Some scripture to back this up. Jesus only talks, Jesus only uses the word church twice. He knows it's coming. One of those two times is when he tells Peter, you know, your statement of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that rock I will build my church. And I'll call you Peter, which is rocky. The other one, Matthew chapter 18. 
If your brother sins against you, says Jesus, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. And in 1 Timothy, chapter 5. Verse 20, Paul tells Timothy, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that, the, so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Sin has consequences and hiding it has consequences. Hiding it has dangerous, deadly consequences. It loves to hide in darkness. God's grace brings sin into the open, and he deals with it strongly, but, but with love. So the point of, of exposing sin is not to be vindictive, it's not to be hateful, it's not for the purpose of embarrassment, it's because there are worse things than rock bottom. Dying apart from God is horrific, never-ending horrific. And if we love people, we want them to come out of sin and to bring them to mourning so that mourning can lead to repentance, the point of the book of Joel we do it the way Jesus says. If, if one-on-one doesn't work. So let's, let's finish chapter 1 of Joel, verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures. And flames have burned up all the f- trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. So why do bad things happen to us? To bring us back to God and maybe prepare us for the future. All things work to the good of those who are loved and called according to his plan. Even the bad things? Absolutely. Even the bad things. The same water that softens the carrot hardens the egg. Could the bad things that have happened to us be preparing us to survive something worse down the road? Could, could be. I, dodging the last three years, where I could use a different example. Um, in, my, in, in high school, I got the typhoid uh, vaccine. And that's miserable. Uh, because the typhoid vaccine, they inject you with typhoid. And then your body uh, 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 kind of kind of sickened down version. Your body learns to fight off typhoid and then you're resistant to typhoid. 
typhoid is no fun. I got sick from that shot. That that is if that was the if that was the unpla- if that was the simple version of it, that was kind of the watered down version of typhoid. I can see why that's a why that's a pan- was a pandemic in the past and why people died from it. Just the shot alone, I I couldn't get out of bed for days. That was terrible. Of course, you guys know. I mean, smallpox was a killer until they discovered that certain people didn't get smallpox. Remember who who didn't? People who had cowpox. All the all the milkmaids that were working with cows got this disease called cowpox, and it made them sick, but then they never got smallpox. And so they discovered that if we get people sick with cowpox, they won't get smallpox. And cowpox was worth it because it wasn't nearly as deadly. Sometimes we are most joyful because of the fires that temper us and build us up Sometimes we need a time of mourning and sorrow to understand just how much joy is in our life and how good God has given it to us. What is the purpose of mourning? You know, we read it back in verse 14. Joel calls on the people to mourn and fast. We might even ask, what's the purpose of fasting? And should Christians mourn today? Should they fast today? Mourning brings us to a point of receptivity. We come to rely on God. We need him. And we need to see that we need him. Or what a waste of time all of this is. We recognize that we are miserable without him. And that it is he that sustains us. We need him. And I will say that fasting, just in passing, because I think it should be talked about, fasting is similar when we are not relying on God for food, the cravings that come with it, the release of the endorphins and anything else that comes when we eat when we come we, it helps us come to realize that we rely upon god now let me be very clear there's a drastic difference between fasting and starvation there's a drastic difference between fasting and dieting don't have time to get into all of that today fasting is for spiritual purpose fasting is when for the sake of drawing close to god you do away with food and you maybe spend even the time that you would normally spend eating immersed in prayer and the word Should Christians fast? I don't know. Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you fast, this is how you should do it. He doesn't say if, he says when. But then he doesn't follow that up with you must fast. So it's kind of somewhere between if you fast and you must fast. It's a when you fast. In Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch were praying and fasting together when the Holy Spirit told them, hey, there's these two guys, Barnabas and this guy Saul, who's going to be renamed Paul. You should send these guys out to, to, to do some missionary work. And of course, we know that's when everything transforms. The church just transforms. That, that missionary journey of Barnabas and, and, and Paul is the start of the evangelism of the church. And that began with prayer and fasting. So I think that there, I th- between Jesus' words and the, and the example of the church in Antioch, I do think that there's a place for fasting. In, in the church. I don't see it's a command, but I, I see that God uses it very powerfully. God seems to do pretty impressive things when his people fast. But let me offer a caution. You know, we, we talked about performance, repentance. Je- Jesus cautions not to have outward signs be in conflict with inward pride or arrogance. He says, don't, don't pray like the Pharisees and who beat their chest and mourn and wail in the, in the choicest spots in public so everybody can see them. And that absolutely applies to fasting. Uh, we see throughout the Bible, Daniel and others, 
Prayer and fasting are often done in secret. Now, again, Antioch, we read that they did it together. Joel, we read that the community is called to fast together. But they're united in mourning and despair and reliance and not on the performance of who can look the gauntest and the hungriest and who can give up the most calories. And mourning, and sometimes fasting, brings reliance on God, brings us to a point of reliance because unless we rely on God, we are lost. Let us be united in mourning our sin, the sin of this world. Let us learn to be reliant on God. That is the call that we get from Joel. And so whether it's bugs or, or an army, it doesn't matter. The point still applies to us. In mourning, we see sin and our need for God. Our hymn of decision today might be 36, and it might be something different. I can't tell. As the deer. So... Christianity will not make you happy all the time. That's not its point. But God will bless you in the hard times. The tough times don't go away, but when you're with Christ, you have someone to go through those tough times with you. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.